0: We are on Romans chapter 5. And as we just keep, or yeah, Romans chapter 5, as we continue to follow the flow of the book, um, just remember chapters 1, 2, and 3, the first half of 3, anyways, Paul is emphatically building the case of our sin. It's absolutely vital for us to understand the depths of it. Uh, We're going to hear today about three different types. uh, uh, We're going to hear today about original sin, three different types uh, that we deal with, that it brings death. Uh, Paul's building that case because uh, as he's going to talk about the law, which makes us aware of our sin and that sin brings death. Therefore, the law, he'll say, is holy. Uh, Because it brings that awareness that we need to have uh, for Christ. And anything that brings an an awareness of our need for Christ is obviously serving the purposes of Christ. So that would make it holy in that regard. And so uh, chapters 2 and 3 really led to saying it's both Jew and Gentile that's guilty before God. And then the second half of chapter 3 is the uh, glorious announcement of uh, the righteousness of god 's revealed to us it 's made available to us through faith in jesus Christ and we 're going to talk about how that happens tonight how actually does faith in Christ do something in us that God can actually look upon us and and righteously deem us to be righteous he 's not just calling calling uh guilty people innocent he 's just not. Saying, we're innocent. He's, 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 there's some imputation we're going to talk about tonight that uh, is an amazing concept. And when we talk about imputation, I want you to have this context for it. Imp- without imputation, there's no justification. And without justification, there's no gospel. Okay? So to have the gospel of Christ, we're going to be made just. we're going to be justified by faith alone through Christ alone. And how are we justified? How can a righteous God declare guilty people innocent? We wouldn't allow a Supreme Court judge to do that, right? To declare guilty people to be innocent. We'd want them thrown off the bench for that. So how does God declare guilty people innocent? It's going to be through this thing we call imputation that we're going to cover in this chapter. So let's open in a word of prayer and get the ideas from Paul for chapter 5 here. And ask God to bless it. Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you, Lord, and just excited to uh, go into the next chapter of this amazing letter, Lord, that uh, may be uh, the most comprehensive look at your work uh, in redeeming mankind through the cross of your Son. And so as we do that, God, we pray that you would open our eyes and ears so they see and hear our hearts, that our hearts would understand. And Lord, that in all things, your will will be done in our lives. And we pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. So, um, chapter five starts with the word therefore. So I'm sure you've heard me say this, some of you, a thousand times already. Um, Why is it there? What is it for? Okay, always ask yourself that. Make sure you're referring back to the previous paragraph or so. To see what's happening here. Okay? So, whoever divided these chapters up, I would never want them to start a chapter with the word therefore. It's just not a good starting point. So, <clears throat> if you look back, probably we'll just go back to, to uh, chapter 4, verse 23 to see what was happening. It says, Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. It's talking about Abraham. Remember the whole argument. Abraham was declared righteous. Before he ever did a work like circumcision or willing to sacrifice his son, Isaac, he was declared righteous before that. And when was he declared righteous? When it said he believed God. Okay? He believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. So Paul develops that theme that even the Old Testament people were saved by faith. Just like we're saved by faith. They were not saved by their sacrificial system. They're not saved by any obedience to the law. If it was up to that, none of them would have been saved. Okay? They're saved by faith alone. So as he develops that up in chapter 5, he starts with, therefore, because we're saved and justified by faith alone. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So As he talks about, he's going to now talk about benefits we get from being justified by by faith. And he's going to name three results here that we get uh, through justification. And the first thing he says in verse 1 is we have peace with God. We have peace with God. Now, if you've been a Christian quite a while and so forth and you've been at peace with God for quite a while, Sometimes you can be at peace for so long that you totally forget what war looks like. I think I'm kind of like this perfect age right now where from the time I was born to the time now, I've never been asked to fight in a war, and to me that's just normal. But if you look at the history of humankind, it's it's rare. Tons and tons of people have been asked to fight in wars. Um, you know, my, the generation before me and my family fought in... Whether it be Korea, Vietnam, or World War II, and I don't know much further back in my family, but they probably fought in wars as well. I just happen to be of this age where there's been this peace, you know, at least on this, in this country. I haven't been asked to take up arms and fight. I, We've had enough peace that I've avoided war my entire life so far. Now, <clears throat> so I'm used to peace. And you might be walking with God long enough where you're just used to peace with God. But you got to remember, it was just two weeks ago that we talked about this case that Paul builds against us in chapter 3. He said, starting in verse 10, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They've together become unprofitable. Just talking about you and I. There's no one who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb, so he starts now condemning our speech. With their tongues, they practice deceit. I think this room is filled with people that have done that at various points. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, so after condemning our words, he goes to condemn our actions. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they've not known. So, the declaration of, of, of um, the scriptures is that apart from Christ, the way of peace, we don't know it. Okay, until we meet Christ and get peace with God through Christ, we didn't know the way of peace. Okay, we didn't know the way of peace. So, for Paul to say here, because you've been justified by faith, now you have peace with God. Your All the other enemies, like if it's nations or, 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 or co-workers or whoever your enemies might be, are at some level temporary enemies. Okay, Even if you have them for life, death will end their enmity with you. But to not have peace with God would be an eternal lack of peace that you'd have. So, Paul's celebrating here now because of this thing that we're really going to look into tonight, this justification, says the first benefit you're going to get from that justification is peace with God, okay? It's better to be at war with the entire world and have peace with God than to be at peace in the world and not have peace with God, okay? So in a list of priorities of peace, the very top priority, Christ settled for you and me. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. So therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So the second thing he says that comes from our justification is that now we have access to grace. So we, it, it's, it's, we have peace with God, but now we have access to grace. Now, because we're justified, and we're going to be treated as if we weren't sinners, even though we are sinners, that's what justification is, we're we're then given mercy. In other words, we should be punished as sinners, and we're not going to receive the punishment of sinners, not the eternal punishment of sinners. We're not going to receive that which we've earned and deserve. The wages of our sin is death. We're not going to get that. That's mercy. But now Paul's saying you actually now have access into grace. So not only do we get mercy by being saved, but now he says you have access to this grace, which is getting good things that you haven't earned or deserved. So what you haven't deserved is bad, and you're not going to get it. What you haven't earned and deserved is good, and now you are going to get it. So you have access to this grace now in which we stand. So it's this I remember there being, I think it was a diet soda commercial that talked about the great taste of it, and then it kept emphasizing the word and. And there's less calories. They're saying you don't get this or, like you got to pick, do I want a good tasting soda or less calories? You get and. They kept saying you get the and, you get the and. Here, you get the and. Okay, you get the mercy, you're not getting the bad you did deserve, and you're going to get this grace called heaven. So it'd be great if God just said, you deserve eternal punishment, but you're not. You're just going to cease to exist when you die. Then we go, very kind, thank you very much. But he says, instead I'm going to actually add grace on, and you're going to go to heaven, and you're going to be filled with joy forever. So I'm supposed to get eternal suffering, but I'm getting eternal joy. It's a little ridiculous, right? Okay? Grace is a little ridiculous. So Paul says, now that you've been justified, you have access to the goodness of God, to to his good will for your life, to the good acts that he'll do on your behalf based on that good will. You have access to all of that grace now. And then he says, and, there it is again, rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So the third benefit we get from this justification here is rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. Now, Rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. <clears throat> glory, this word glory in the New Testament is the Greek word kabod. And it literally means weightiness. So when we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about the weightiness of God. That when he speaks, temples shake in the Bible, right? Smoke fills the room. Mountaintops catch on fire. That's a weighty presence, right? Okay. Or some of you are disappointed that this is all you get when I show up, right? there's nothing absolutely nothing happens when I show up, okay there's not a lot of weightiness uh going on up here, but God has weightiness, He has glory uh to him, and we rejoice it says rejoice in hope of this glory. Now, they don't use hope in the Bible the way we use hope in in our lives, right. It's not used the same way, okay? So we hope for things that we don't know if it's going to be fulfilled or not, but we hope they will, right? You Dolphin fans know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, you hope and you hope and you hope. That gets disappointed quite a bit, right? Now, the hope in the Bible is, I'm going to give you a three-word definition that I really like. Biblical hope is this, faith looking forward, okay? Hope in the Bible is faith looking forward. So my faith that Jesus died for my sins and rose again on the third day, and that defeated sin and death in the grave for me, that's my faith. That's faith. That's a past event that I believe. I have faith in that. I'm going to trust in it. I'm going to put my entire hope for eternal life in that past event. That's faith. Now when I look to heaven and for the joy of heaven and seeing uh, my my loved ones that have passed before me again and being reunited and being filled with joy and seeing Jesus and being healed of all infirmities and all of that, that's in the category of hope, but not a hope that could ever disappoint. It's faith, just like my faith in the past events, but it's looking forward. It's faith looking forward is what hope is. Now, and Paul will say the only reason why we call it hope is because nobody hopes for what they already have. It's just the fact that you don't have heaven right now that we use the word hope. But it's just as sure as you do have it. Paul will say in the present tense verbiage, you're seated at the right hand of the Father with Christ in the heavenlies. He doesn't say you will be. It says you are. It's as good as done. Okay? So it's hope that's certainly going to be fulfilled. It says, so we rejoice in that hope of the glory of God. Peace with God is the first benefit he talks about here of our justification, access to grace and the hope of the glory of God that causes our rejoicing. Verse three, and not only that, he sounds like a salesman, doesn't he? Okay, it's like a second set of steak knives we're getting here, right? He says, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Now that's, he just he just turned the tides a little bit, didn't he? Good, good, good. He goes, not only that, but now you can gl- glory in tribulations. Why? Because now you're gods. Well, that didn't sound right. You're, you're, you belong to God, is what I'm trying to say. I'm not calling you people gods. I'm saying you belong to God now. So now because you belong to him, guess what he's going to do when you find yourself in tribulation? He's going to... It says, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Now, if you're like me, you go, how about we, I'll do away with the tribulation and just be cool without having perseverance, right? I'm okay with that deal there, right? But, perseverance is not all. It says, it produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character. Now we're getting into things I'm much more interested in, right? So how do I develop character? Well, you know Almost all suffering produces character. You know that because all good things we try to become, we become as a result of some sort of suffering. You want to be a great athlete? You're going to have to suffer physically, aren't you? You're going to have to train your body. You're going to have to create suffering for yourself. You want to be a scholar? You're going to have to uh, suffer through studying, aren't you? Okay. I forget who said it, but somebody really smart said, to, to, um, to learn is to suffer, and to suffer is to learn. They go together like that. Okay? But if you want to be an intellect, it's going to require your suffering. If you want to be an athlete, it's going to recover, require your suffering. If you want to be a person of character, it's going to require your suffering. Whenever somebody comes up and they say, Hey, so-and-so is going to give their testimony, I promise you, it's going to be a story of suffering and perseverance through that suffering that built character in them, right? It's not much of a testimony say, I was born from 0 to 10, everything went really great, then I turned 11, and it got even better, then I turned 20, and it got even better. Thank you for visiting today, we'll see you later, right? Everybody's going to go, what did we hear that for, right? Okay, so so we glory in tribulations now because we're believers. So non-believers can't count on this. They can count on perseverance developing through tribulations and even character developing through perseverance, but here's what they can't, they can't complete the chain here. The chain is completed in verse four, says your character will produce hope in you. The hope that I was just talking about. So in other words, you've got to receive the Holy Spirit to be able to understand the scriptures. Do you know that? Okay, without the Spirit, you can't understand the Scriptures. That's why there's MIT graduates that go through this and they go, what the heck was that? Okay, and there's kids in our sixth grade that light up when they hear this. Okay, so it requires the Holy Spirit to understand the Scriptures and to understand a hope that does not disappoint. You're going to go through tribulations. God's going to use those tribulations to build this perseverance into you Where in Hebrews, they'll say, those who persevere to the end, they'll be saved. Okay, Perseverance is an opportunity for you to say, these tribulations are an opportunity for you to say, that's enough, I don't trust them anymore. Okay, Because God did that, I'm out. But if you don't, and you persevere, it's going to build your character. Your character then, when God shows up to give you the answers of that tribulation, then your hope becomes more secure. So we glory in tribulations because the end result is hope. And then verse 5, Paul says now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, how good of a gift is the Holy Spirit? Well, I'll share this with you that when Jesus is talking about his departure from the apostles, when he's letting them know that he's going to go and leave them behind. <clears throat> he says, it's good that I go. He says, here's why it's good that I go. Because when I go, I will send you the helper, and that's the Holy Spirit, who will teach you all things and remind you of all things. So he's actually going to say, you're actually going to say when I'm gone, hey, this is actually good that he went, because of what the Holy Spirit does through us. Okay. Now, uh, I'm going to go to Hebrews six. Hebrews six, and we're going to look at the example of Abraham again. You see why Abraham is such a hero of the faith. He's used time and time again for examples. Well, let's look at Hebrews six, and what I want to look at is how does this tribulations leading to character, leading to uh, tribulations leading to perseverance, leading to character, leading to hope look like? Starting in verse 13, Hebrews 6 says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by nobody greater, he swore by himself. Don't you love that problem God has? When he makes an oath, he can't swear by anybody higher than himself. So he says, I swear that I will do this, so help me, me. Right? Okay? There's nobody higher he can swear by. So the writer of Hebrews says so he swore by himself saying surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you this is the promise to Abraham and so after he had patiently endured he obtained the promise so there's the perseverance right perseverance is patient endurance so after he patiently endured he attained the promise for men indeed swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, he confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it's impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor for the soul. Okay? So... What's the idea of an anchor? Doesn't matter how much the wind blows or the storms kick up, that ship is going to stay right there, right? That's the purpose of an anchor. So now we have this idea of an anchor, and um, it's not uh, an anchor that's going to ground us in stability to where we are. So that's the clear distinction of earthly hope versus this biblical hope. There's no anchor for for earthly hope, right? But promises that are from God are so guaranteed to be fulfilled that Paul says now that future event that you haven't laid hold of yet, you have it as a hope, and that hope is an anchor for your soul. So now that you know that God will indeed conquer the grave for you, you no longer fear death because God's guarantee of heaven for you serves as an anchor for your soul so that even sickness, disease, tragedy, or uh, even somebody holding a gun to you and saying, deny Jesus Christ. And right now you, you think, I don't know if I could do that, but I'll say this for the authentic Christian here. God will give you grace in your time of need, and I'll bet you anything that you won't deny him in that situation. That you're not going to forfeit your entire walk with him, there, and that's you know I talk about the girls from Columbine High School a lot over the last 22 years, because I've been teaching students for 26 years, and they're they're in Christian schools and they're always wondering, what if what 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 would I say if somebody put a gun to my head and told me to deny him, and they instinctively think they would deny him because they're they're teenagers afraid of death. But I tell them, not you authentic Christians, I don't think you would. Remember, God gives grace in your time of need. Right now, I don't need the grace to do that, do I? I don't need it now. But if I needed it, I think I would have it because that's a promise. Okay? And and the hope that's set before me, I think, will become crystal clear to me in that moment where I could honor God in that moment no matter what. So the hope serves as an anchor for the soul. It says both sure and steadfast, in which enters the presence behind the veil. Let's talk about the veil where the Holy of Holies was, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We're going to bring up Melchizedek in a little while again for a different point. So I'll save that for then. All right. Now, in your notes for this, I wrote uh, something to help make the point of glorying in tribulations. I said we glory in tribulations because we realize we have found the treasure or the pearl of great price. You know those two really short parables Jesus tells? He says the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a treasure in a field that a man just stumbles upon and finds. And... For the joy of finding that treasure, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field because he knows the worth of that treasure is far greater than all of his wealth, okay? And rejoices in the fact that he's got the treasure now. And then the very next parable he teaches us, when the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a pearl of great price. It says that a man is seeking, so he's not stumbling upon it accidentally like the treasure. This is somebody seeking God. This is somebody who, like... um. Nabil Qureshi, I think his name was, he was, uh, he was uh, under Ravi Zacharias in his ministry, and uh, he, he was a, a Muslim who came out of Islam because he found Jesus, and he wrote a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And as he's seeking Allah, he's seeking truth. He wants to know what, what's actually the truth, and he found that Jesus is actually the truth. And he became a tremendous Christian apologist. And, and until he, he got stomach cancer and passed away. But uh, it's a wonderful book that he wrote about that. He was seeking. He found the pearl of great price. Other people just sometimes they, um, you know, I had a student who overdosed and went into a coma. and With all that she heard from school, she never bought into it. But then all of a sudden she uh, wakes up out of the coma and she's a great Christian, wonderful Christian. She wasn't supposed to wake up from that coma, says all the doctors. So so she found the treasure without really seeking it. But now that she found it, she's living it out. So um, we can rejoice um, in our tribulations because we found that treasure. We have that pearl of great price. So even when tribulations come, God will work them for good. It's not just a verse, it's a promise. All right, verse six. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So these verses demonstrate the uniqueness of God's love saying it'd be hard to find someone who would die for a righteous man or even for a good man. I can't tell you the distinction that's being made there between a righteous man and a good man. Usually they're synonymous. Uh, But Paul's saying, certainly for a crummy man, nobody's going to die for a crummy man. For a righteous man, probably nobody will dare to die for him. Maybe for a good man, somebody might find that'll dare to die for him. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were crummy, while we were still sinners, without asking us to clean up our act, without saying, if you do this first, then I'll die for you. Without doing any of that. While we were still sinners, while we were enemies with him, while we were walking in the darkness, he died for us. And Paul says that's a demonstration of his love. He's demonstrating his love for us that way. Now... Demonstrates three things. The first thing it says it demonstrates is. It says. When we were still without strength. So we are without. The strength to save ourselves. Is the first thing it demonstrates. Regarding our salvation. We are utterly without strength. Now regarding our walk with God. Not our salvation. But our walk with God. We're taught that our strength. Is best manifested in our weaknesses. Now you'd say. Who could possibly back up an idea that our strength is best manifested in our weaknesses? Well, you can go with me to Second Corinthians chapter 12. And Paul, he just talked about being caught up to the third heaven. And he says he was caught up to paradise and he heard inexpressible words which he's not allowed to utter. It's like he can't tell us what he saw in heaven. And then he says, because, in verse 7, it says, unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. He's saying the abundance of the revelations that I saw in heaven, it, it, with, without this thorn in the flesh that he's going to talk about, he says, I would have been elevated in my own mind beyond measure. I would not have been a very likable man. I would have been walking around going, I saw heaven. Okay, I know what's coming. You guys don't. He's saying, so to keep me from being exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. He calls it a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thorn in the flesh, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. You hear that? Listen, do you know sometimes God's answer to your suffering is this? The purpose of your suffering is to learn about my grace, my sufficient grace. Many times in my life when I've not been happy with either how I feel or what's going on in my life or how I'm being treated or whatever, I ask God, show me sufficient grace right now. I want to sleep well tonight. Show me sufficient grace. I want to have peace with my enemies. Give me sufficient grace to do that. I don't want to respond in the flesh to this person that I really want to respond in the flesh to right now. Give me sufficient grace. This guy has his blinker on and I don't want to let him in. Give me sufficient grace. Okay? Always asking for sufficient grace. Paul is giving, he's been given torment to learn about Sufficient grace through being tormented. And the grace that he's going to receive will be sufficient. And God says, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So Paul was worried about what he saw is going to make him boast so much that he won't even be a godly man. He won't be a godly man because of the boasting that he's going to be doing about what he saw. So he gets this torment, messenger of Satan to to torment him so that he can learn about sufficient grace and he can learn that as he's made weak through this torment, he's going to be the most powerful apostle in the history of the world. Because now he can say it's all God. And if I wasn't made weak, I'd probably be telling you how great I am. But because I was made weak, God's power was shown through me. Okay, Because we're told that we are vessels of the glory of God but it says these vessels are earthen vessels, okay? They're they're fragile flesh and blood vessels of God's glory, okay? And it says that it's been put into these fragile vessels to demonstrate the the glory of God so that we can not take credit for it, okay? So our strength is best manifested in our weaknesses because then we could talk about the strength of God and not our strength. And if you have stories of the strength of God, those stories will be stories that you know you could have never achieved on your own. You would not have persevered through it. You would have not have had the character for it. And the hope that comes from telling that story, you would not have experienced either. All right. Okay. um, back to Romans well the second thing it demonstrates in 6 through 8 it says verse 7 says for scarcely for a righteous man will one die yet perhaps for a good man somebody would dare to die so the second thing that it demonstrates for us is that God's love for us is not typical of human loves it's not a typical love that you know about from having human loves whether it's Husband to wife, whether it's parent to child, whether it's sibling love, whether it's friendship love. God's love for us is not typical of that. It's superior to that. It's saying that it'd be very hard for human love to actually say, you're supposed to die right now, but I have the ability to take your place, so I will. Paul's saying you're not going to find that love very much. Parent to child, probably. Okay? Other than that, probably not so much. Okay. I remember a pastor very transparently saying one day to a congregation, because of a conversation he had right before that sermon, of somebody that needed a kidney transplant. And he said, I was kind of horrified to think that maybe they're going to ask me for a kidney. I'm their pastor. and Maybe they go, hey, you're a pastor. You're supposed to be all this loving guy. Can I have a kidney? And they didn't. And he, he said, I'm really glad they didn't. And here's what I realize: I don't love them enough to give them a kidney. He says, my family, I give them the heart out of my chest. I give them whatever they needed. But this person in the hallway, I don't love him enough for that. He says, but God demonstrated his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this is not a typical love that we, when you think of God's love for you, you should not compare it to your spouse's love for you or even your love for your child. Your love for your child is a shadow of the bright, gleaming light of glory of God's love for you. It's a shadow of that. And you would die for your child, wouldn't you? Okay. But this is a beautiful, bright, gleaming light of glory compared to that. So it's not typical of human loves. And the third things we see here is that it says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God's love is not conditioned on our lovability. He's not loving us based based on how lovable we are. Okay. It's unconditional. Think of God sending Jonah to the Ninevites. Jonah's saying, they're awful people. I'd rather them go to hell than me go there and tell them about you. They're terrible, terrible people. But God isn't looking at how terrible they are. He's responding based on his love for them. It's not conditioned upon their lovability. Think of the Samaritan woman. Think of Mary Magdalene, seven demons in her. When she receives the love of God. Okay, Jesus didn't say, hey, you can follow me as soon as you get rid of all the evil in you. Let me know if that were how that works out for you. He didn't say that. He loved her immediately. Okay, and healed her. God's love for you has nothing to do with your lovability. Jacob, the Bible says very sadly, was unable to love the unlovely Leah said God opened her womb to give birth to six out of the 12 tribes of Israel, more than any of the other women. She gave birth to more of the 12 tribes than than the others. God opened her womb, and it says because she remained unloved by Jacob. He could not love the unlovely. And um, the Samaritan woman asked Jesus, are you greater than our father Jacob? This unlovely woman wants to know, can you love the unlovely? And sure enough, she becomes a bride of Christ in that chapter. He loves the unlovely. Um, if you, 2,000 years ago, went to see Jesus, the rabbi, Jesus, you could go look in all of the hangouts of the Pharisees and you wouldn't find them, would you? But if you went to the sinner's house, guess who'd be eating there with them? Be Jesus. Okay, The rejected tax collectors, the harlots, the sinners. So he's having dinner with. Um, God's love for you is not conditioned upon your lovability. It's conditioned on his infinite ability to love the unlovely. Verse 9. Much more than. We're going to talk about that phrase. Much more than. Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Okay, so... Paul now uses a teaching technique that we see Jesus use that we know um, the rabbi that trained Paul, the rabbi Hillel, used. And it's called this how much more method. Okay, How much more. And we see in the book of Numbers that when Aaron and Miriam, Moses' sister, oppose Moses marrying an Ethiopian woman. They don't want him to marry this Ethiopian girl. God plagues Miriam with leprosy. And Aaron begs Moses to pray on her behalf. So he prays to God. And God's answer was this. If a father, or I'm sorry, if a daughter spat in the face of her father, she'd be kicked out of the camp for seven days. How much more serious is it that Miriam opposed Moses, who's God's representative of the people? And there, by opposing Moses, she's opposing God. Saying, how much more worthy of punishment is she is? In other words, the leprosy fits her. Because if she offended an earthly father, she'd be out of the camp for seven days. How much more punishment should she have for offending the representative of God? Moses, how much more? And God's saying there, a deadly disease of leprosy fits the bill for that. See, this is why people get frustrated with with the teachings on hell. They think nobody's ever done anything worthy of hell. Eternal punishment is a bit much for not believing, they'll say. But what's important to understand about hell is this how much more idea That Jesus teaches in and Paul teaches in and the Old Testament teaches in. And it's simply saying this. If you offended the king of Saudi Arabia, he's going to behead you, isn't he? How much more worthy of punishment are you in for if you offend the king of all kings? In other words, what's your view of God? How high of a view of God do you have? As the Bible says, he is so much higher than any earthly king that the only thing that's right for rejecting him is eternal punishment in hell. It's Not saying he's so mad that he just wants you to suffer for it. It's saying it's the only thing that balances the, the scales of justice for who you offended. Hell is much more about who you offended than what you've done. Hell is much more about who you offended than what you've done. Because there are people who behave better than me and you that go to hell. They behave better than you and me. It's not about what they've done. It's about who they've offended and and what it would take to balance those scales of offending somebody so infinitely higher than any earthly king that you would be executed for offending, correct? How much more worthy of punishment? So here, Paul says, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, when we were enemies, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? So it's saying, if he reconciled to us when we were enemies, how much more, now this gets into the access to his grace area, shall we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received rec- reconciliation. So I told you that how much more teaching of numbers. Jesus will teach the how much more method in Matthew 7 and Luke 11 when he'll say, Which of you earthly fathers, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, he'll give him a scorpion. And the idea is none of you earthly fathers would do that to your kid. He says, How much more? If you ask God, will he give you the Holy Spirit if you ask him? If you you sinful fathers know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does God know how to give good gifts to those who ask him? Infinitely more he knows how to do it. So Paul is utilizing that how much more comparative method to make his point. All right. Verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned, we're going to get into these really long sentences that are very fast-paced, of Paul. So I'm going to try to make sure I hit the key points, make sure you understand the key points. So verse 12, it says, through one man, sin entered the world. Who's that one man? It's Adam, Right. Through Adam, sin entered the world, and death came through that sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sin. Now, I want to give you these different views of Adam's sin and tell you what I think Paul's getting at here in Romans, which view of sin he's getting at. The first view, which is the most popular, most widely accepted view, is called federalism. It means Adam's the federal head of mankind. Because certainly, and I've had these thoughts many times in the past. I say, why am I being punished for Adam's sin? Okay, maybe I would have done better in the garden, right? Okay, who knows? Now we do know I wouldn't have done better in the garden. So God chooses a federal head, and God chooses perfectly, correct? So he's perfectly chosen a federal head for us. And and uh so 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 with that thought, Paul's saying here that. Through that one man, sin entered the world, and now all of us die because of that one man, because he was our federal head. And people who want to reject this idea of Adam being a federal head, you're going to see that Paul is now going to compare Jesus to Adam. Before this chapter is over, he'll compare Jesus to Adam and say, Jesus is also now our federal head, and his death goes to all. So if you don't want Adam's sin to go to you, then the only fair thing for you to say is you don't want Jesus' death to go towards you either. Because they're both used as a federal head. Now, so that's federalism. A second idea um, is called realism. And to understand realism, I'm going to read from Genesis 14. You don't have to go there, but you can if you want. Genesis 14, verse 18. The idea of realism is this. It's the idea that people say, the reason why we're guilty of Adam's sin and we'll die because we've inherited that sin, that the idea of realism, is not that Adam was our federal head. The idea of realism is saying we were really present with Adam in the garden when he sinned. And they get that from this, I told you we go back to Melchizedek. Genesis 14, I'm going to read from verses 18 to 20. It says, the Melchizedek king of Salem brought out bread and wine, this is to Abraham, he was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And it says, and he, Abraham, gave him, Melchizedek, a tithe of all. He gave him a tithe of all. And you're like, how in the world are you tying that into this? Well, into this realism. Well, if you go to Hebrews 7, an inspired writer is going to tie it in. Hebrews 7, getting back to Melchizedek, I'm going to read verses 4 through 10. It says, Now consider how great this man Melchizedek was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Saying, consider how great Melchizedek must be, because Abraham tithed to him. And indeed, those who are are of the sons of Levi who received the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them, this is Melchizedek, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. And Melchizedek blessed Abraham, so it's saying Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Verse 9 is the key. Even Levi, that's for me, I'm in the shower. Even Levi, who receives tithes, because he's the head of the priesthood of Israel, right, Levi? Even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So, the story of Melchizedek and Abraham is that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, which means Melchizedek's the better of the two, the, 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 the higher ranking of the two. But now Abraham is going to give birth to Isaac, who's going to give birth to Jacob, who's going to give birth to Levi. So, Levi is like a great grandchild of this situation. He's not there, he's not alive when Abraham's talking to Melchizedek, he's not even alive. Yet this says he paid tithes to Melchizedek, even though he wasn't born yet. Because it says he was in the loins of Abraham when Abraham did it. So therefore he did it. That's realism. Saying he was really there in the loins of his great-grandfather when his great-grandfather did it. Therefore he did it. That's what they get the idea of realism for. So saying you were really in the loins of Adam when Adam did it. So you did it. It's the idea of realism. Okay? Not as popular as federalism, but it has that scriptural support for it. Okay? A couple people nodding. The rest of you, I don't know. Okay. All right. All right. And the third view of Adam's sin that I'll give you tonight uh, comes from Jonathan Edwards, a wonderful revivalist preacher a couple hundred years ago in New England. It's called uh, identity theory, Jonathan Edwards' identity theory. And he says, it's not that our souls, so he's kind of going against realism in this sense, it's not our souls were in the garden with Adam when Adam sinned. He says, but we were really present in the mind of God when that happened. And if you're present in the mind of God, that means you're actually present, because God is omnipresent, and he's all places, all times. And so if you're present in the mind of God, then you're there. And you were present in the mind of God when Adam sinned, and they'll back that up by saying, uh, when God in Genesis 3 says the seed of the woman will conquer the seed of the serpent, that conquering was for you. You're in his mind when he's setting this whole gospel message up. So you're really present in the mind of God. So you're really present when Adam sinned. So you're really guilty of Adam's sin. Okay, that's how that goes. That's identity theory compared to realism that says <clears throat> uh, your, your soul was really there. Based on the Melchizedek story versus federalism, which as we finish this chapter, it seems Paul is going a little bit more towards federalism. Alright. Whew. <clears throat> I don't know why this one's wearing me out a little bit. Alright, now, where am I? Verse uh thirteen. Okay. For in, Now this is where you're going to go, what in the heck? And I'm going to read it. I'm going to read through, um, let's see. I want to talk about imputation before we close tonight. So it says, for until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. Okay, so in 13 he's saying there's a bit of a problem here. He's saying, for until the law. Now when he says until the law, he's talking about when God gave Moses the law on Mount Sinai. So we're talking Exodus 20 area. So you got 50 chapters of Genesis and 20 chapters of Exodus where there's no law, correct? There's no law for for those 70 chapters, first 70 chapters of the Bible. It says, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. So in those 70 chapters from Adam to Moses, people were dying. And so therefore, They were sinning against some law. There's something they're violating that they're dying because death comes through sin, correct? So he says, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who's a type of him who was to come. So what is the sin that they were guilty of, even though there was no law to point out their sin? It says, well, there's no law, there's no sin because... There's nothing saying what you shouldn't do, so how can you charge somebody with breaking a law that doesn't exist? Yet they're dying as lawbreakers, so what sin are they guilty of? What sin are they guilty of? Original sin. Adam's sin. So how does original sin actually work? Okay. Well, Adam was transformed through the partaking of that fruit. And the sign of his transformation was he realized he was naked, correct? So something before the eating of that fruit, there was some covering. I think it's some sort of glory, some sort of light that he loses. And he acquires shame. And loses glory, acquires shame through the eating of the fruit. Okay? And now, in his transformed state, now he's going to start giving birth. And because he's now a sinner, he can only give birth to other sinners. His nature has become sinful. He can only give birth to children with sinful natures. Okay? Any of you have had children that from zero to three disagreed with everything and never cried and never said no or mine or anything like that? No. Right? They have a sinful nature. Okay, that's why children die. Children don't violate laws. They don't know any laws that they're they're willfully violating, but children will die because of their sinful nature, okay? We can, and I believe they're all in heaven, and I think that's what the Bible's leading us to believe. But anyways, um, I really thought this would be so quick we'd finish early, and now I'm not even going to finish. I don't know what happened on that. All right. Now, so we have this, um, these three views of Adam's sin, federalism, realism, identity theory, and (coughs) Um I included this little poem um, that because I can't do a fair job of imputation tonight, I'm going to save that for next week. But I'll close with this poem that has to do with this idea of um, Adam's sin counting for us, that we are a part of that sin and that fall. And uh, we're not going to get to Paul's argument that we're now also a part of the resurrection of the dead, and only Jesus got that for us, so we're participating in that as well. But if you have notes, you'll see this um, under verse 12, a uh, very famous uh, poem. And uh it says, no man is an island. So when people say, I don't want to be a part of what Adam did. No, no man's an island, entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main, If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thy friends or thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I'm involved in mankind. And therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. We're all connected, right? We're all affected by each other's lives. I'm sure you heard me say before, and I'll probably say it many times again. Your salvation is not just for your sake only. It's to impact other people. Okay, um, Adam's life impacted other people. Jesus' life impacted other people. You're a part of that. You're part of the impact of other people. No man's an island. Okay, You're, We're all interconnected. So um, Jesus teaches hugely on unity, doesn't he? As he prays to his father before his death, the great highlight of his prayer is that the oneness that he experiences with the Father and the Holy Spirit, he's praying that we would experience that unity and that oneness, okay? that like-mindedness uh, towards the things of God. And um, in that, we will be able to um, have the benefits of justification, which we'll get more into next week. Uh, rejoice in our tribulations even. What a wonderful privilege as a child of God to know that even your tribulations are going to be something that at some point you'll go, certainly glad it happened. You walk faithfully through tribulation, you'll be able to say, I'm certainly glad it happened. And and in all things we can rejoice. Amen. Father, in Jesus' name, uh, just thank you for this uh, chapter, Lord, that uh, we get to uh, see, Lord, as... The case against us was built so well by Paul that now we see that your love for us, that even while we were still sinners, that you died for us, Lord. So God, I just pray that we'd never look upon a cross without being moved by that. Lord, we would never be able to speak of what you have done for us without being reminded that we were without strength the whole time. So God, um, I pray for increased unity in your church. Lord, that your word would do more than we can ask or imagine. Just the fact that we spent an hour going through it would give greater results than any of our minds could fathom. Individually and as a group of your children, Lord, may the Holy Spirit have free reign over our lives. May we constantly yield to his influence and bless your name day and night. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.